everybody. You know who this is. This is Luke Thomas. This is the Monday Morning Analyst for Monday, February 9th, uh, 2015. So, you know, I normally will do these on video, but unfortunately I'm having a lot of video trouble. But the good news is I'm going to be getting a new computer, I think, fingers crossed, um, next week. So this should be the last one I do that's like this. Uh, where it's just audio, uh, and so forgive me. We're, this is not a permanent thing. We are going back to to um, to video as soon as possible. But I have to get this out of the way because I just I need to do the podcast, and I just can't f around with effed up recording forever and ever. Um, so you know how this works. Thirty minutes. We recap the technical action from over the weekend. So this one we're going to have uh, RFA twenty three which was headlined by Terry Ware versus Joe Murphy. I'll get to some of that. Um, I'll briefly give you an update on what happened between Gary Tonnen and Javier Vasquez for the Gracie Nationals 2015. And then, of course, I was at Glory 19. I'll actually kick off things with Glory, but um, and that was in Hampton, Virginia. So a couple things I want to mention before we get to these results. And by the way, i got a stopwatch here that I'm going to start. Ready? Here we go. Right now. 30 minutes on the clock, and it's burning. That way it keeps me honest. Uh, okay, so a couple of things about Glory. As you know, I work for them, so you know. Listen up front. Just take whatever I say, and you know, if you're if you're if you want to be skeptical about it, I really don't have an issue with it because you should be. You should always be skeptical of anybody who takes a paycheck from someone and then offers commentary about it. Now, <clears throat> my own personal integrity, I'm not going to get up here and tell you things I don't believe. But you know, if you disagree with me, by all means, you should say so. Uh, not just on this issue, on any issue. But, you know, I, I'm, I really want to be up front with the fact that, you know, this is not, I don't come from this from an entirely 100% unbiased perspective. That being said, I'm going to give you what my take on it was. Now, my take is going to be colored. I mean, just because I'm up here telling you things that I think are true doesn't mean that I don't necessarily see things through a, uh, a, uh, a, a different lens than the average consumer. But I'll just say, reading around general fan sentiment on the internet, people seem to love this show. And I've been to several Glory events. I was at the, the Last Man Standing, which was the pay-per-view plus the Spike show. I was at the Denver show where you saw Raymond Daniels knock out Francois Ambang with a two-touch spinning, uh, 360 spinning back kick. I was at the Ontario show where Joe Schilling beat Artem Levin to win the contender tournament. I was, um, what else was I at? Um, oh, I went to the Zagreb show where Mirko Krokop faced off against uh, Rem, you know, Remy in the main event. And... I have to say that Zagreb show, you, know, you take different things from each one. Like, the Last Man Standing show was the biggest show they've done. Now, it was a disaster on pay-per-view, but it was the biggest show that they've done. Um, the From what I've seen, I wasn't at the Tokyo show, I wasn't in the London or Stockholm show, but from what I've seen, the Zagreb show was the most well-attended, and Arena Zagreb was really nice, so it had a nice big crowd, and uh, obviously, Mikro Krokop is still a big deal in Zagreb. So that was a really well-attended show. Um, you know, Joe Schilling hadn't quite burst onto the scene yet at Glory 10, but he was, I mean, he owned Los Angeles at the time. And there were lots of people who were supporters of Joe from the L.A. area or the yard or people he had trained with in MMA who came out to see him. And, you know, it was, it was his crowd. But it was, you know, it's, that's different. This was a crowd where no one from there was really headlining. There were some guys on the undercard and things like that, and there was definitely some military tie-ins, but there was no one really from the area to anchor the show. It didn't matter. It was really well-attended. I didn't get some figures, but it looked 
pretty damn full to me, although I welcome anyone who has those figures. Um, and more importantly, the crowd was just really enthusiastic. Like even Joe, in the case of him, now he's blown up a little bit since then, and, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but he wasn't from the area by any stretch of the imagination. He's from L.A., and when he got introduced, he had a big pop, and I remember he, I was right where he was when he got out of the ring, and um, he was getting mobbed for photographs. Mobbed for photographs. And a lot of other guys who are really good, like Nicky Holtzkin, like he's a beast, but they weren't coming up to him like that. Like I mean, I ha- there's just simply, again... You know, take the perspective for what it's worth that I'm giving you, but I I have a hard time finding someone who can say that the Joe Schilling, or rather I should say that the Spike TV effect on Joe Schilling isn't working. It seems to me to be working very well. So, let's go through the card, if we will. Now, uh, uh, one quick note. The main card aired on Spike TV Live. The preliminary card has two parts for every glory show. The first part of the preliminary card on any glory show are simply your local fighters. Glory will partner with a local promoter who will put on guys who just want experience, who are maybe low-level pros, who are, you know, looking for a bigger show to get a part of, um, but also to help fill seats. This is a common thing. Bellator does it. Strikeforce did it. This is a very standard practice, and Glory engages in it as well. So there was an MMA fights that went, amateur MMA fights that went for like an hour, and then at 5 o'clock, I believe it was, um, you know, either amateur or low-level pro Low level, I don't mean like bad, but certainly like newer guys in the in the circuit. And actually, a buddy of mine who teaches at Level Up had a couple guys who, com- who compete, both of whom won. But neither here nor there. Um, so that ended at six, and then six thirty, the Super Fight series. Now the Super Fight series are, I would call, it, it's you know how the UFC stacks a Fox Sports One prelim card, where like Misha Tate will headline the prelim card, or your favorite will headline the prelim card. Glory does that as well. And the reason why they're doing that now, because people were complaining, you know, why is Andy Risty on the preliminary card? It's a similar kind of dynamic. The preliminary card, if you guys didn't see, it, it, it is going to air on tape delay this Friday on CBS Sports Network. Again, main card already aired live on Spike, but they've sold now the Super Fight Series, the second portion of that preliminary card with mostly real Glory fighters on it. That is going to be on CBS Sports Network. So, Going through these, I don't want to spoil them, but the results are they're out. I don't feel like I'm ruining too much of anything. Um, Francois Ombang. I called the Road to Glory tournament in New York that he won, uh, beating Jason Halavacek and some other guys, who's one of Phil Nurse's guys. Francois Ombang beating Stephen Richards by, I mean, you want to talk about a KO at 214 of the second round. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to see this KO, and don't even get on the internet to see it. I mean, I guess if you don't have CVS Sportsnet, do what you got to do, but... Um, you need to see this KO, and if you have the channel, wait until Friday. Francois Ambang lays Stephen Richards out. Hardcore. Stephen Richards is more of a Thai guy, but he was carrying his hands really low. He was sometimes switching stances to give his uh, kicks on one side and advantage going to the body of Ambang. Ambang has a bit of a, a, a higher guard. Ambang has a boxing background from where he's from, and you can really see that. Like He throws kicks at all three dimensions, low, middle, high, but they and they may have a punch before it or after it, but usually they're by themselves. And they're done as simply a way to either respond to him being hit, so like you hit me, I hit you. Um, maybe it's a way just so he can land with one big power shot, so like one one hard kick to the body, or at least to keep you honest by throwing a head kick. But they're not really part of. He still hasn't quite integrated them into his hand attacks. But in any case, um, he didn't need to. He lands in a floor. He gets back. So what? So what? Richards was doing is like pressuring him and pressuring him, and he corners. 
um, bank several times and lands some pretty decent shots, but doesn't really back out, doesn't get his hands up, no head movement, no really moving side to side. Ombang measures him twice with, or hits him with a flurry, then measures him twice with a pawing jab and lands a right hand that is just unbelievable to see. A fantastic, and this started the Super Fight series. Fantastic KO, you absolutely have to see it. Had, had Richards, do you remember how Terry Adam fell when um, he got spitting heel kicked by Edson Barboza? It's kind of like that. Not quite, but pretty close. Uh, Brian Collette defeated Myron Dennis. Myron Dennis, oh, by the way, an MMA fighter as well. Uh, I won't go too much into this one. Uh, won by unanimous decision after three rounds. Brian Collette was losing in the first. It sort of came back with good body work and then basically overwhelmed him with the stronger punching and kicking in the second, especially the third rounds, dropping him with a head kick, semi-glancing in the third. Uh, another bout you absolutely must pay attention to. It was my fight of the undercard. Uh, maybe the fight of the card, to be perfectly honest. Josh Jauncey taking on Max Bomert. Uh, Max Bomert was one of these guys at a Golden Glory. Uh, he's German, but he's at a Golden Glory. Josh Jauncey, a team, uh, an only member from North America as a part of Team Andy Sauer. Josh Jauncey is a freaking beast. You must watch this fight for a couple of reasons. One, the ending is kind of interesting. But more importantly, watch how good Josh Jauncey does everything everything in particular getting his head off the center line when he throws his head movement was fantastic uh just simply unbelievable a lot of these kickboxing guys like Nicky Holtzkin he'll slip a jab here and there but he does a lot of he has a he has a different way of defending which is this really sort of shelled up style where he not only keeps his elbows and tight and ducks his head he can control his posture and he really sort of like for, forms a barrier to to a whole array of strikes you have to really sort of get around the guard and even then um, that's very difficult hard to pierce it hard to come up through the middle he's got a really tight defensive shell Josh Johnson has some decent defense that way but uses a lot of motion as defense um, really, really, really dynamic movement, and 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 just does everything well. Puts together hand and kick combinations. One thing he told us in the fighter meeting was Max Bomer, um will wait for you to throw something, then he'll throw something on that same side as a super quick counter, um, as a way to sort of keep you honest. Like right, like right away he times it, and and Bomer couldn't do that because Josh Johnson was doing that in this fight, and I noticed it right away. I was like, wow, he's doing the exact thing he was worried Bomer was going to do. Um, Bomer doing a lot of pressuring, but Jauncey just doing fantastic, fantastic lateral and angular movement. You really, and trunk movement, head movement, like the whole bit. Uh, you just have to see fluid combinations. Anyway, real quickly, he does get dropped at the very end of the round. Josh Jauncey does, um, but comes back and lands a step through knee in the second round, right on the brow of Max Bomer, and it cuts him in a way that you cannot possibly imagine. So it sounds like I'm slicing up. Josh Johnson for a guy who wasn't doing very well. He was doing very well, but just understand there were some limitations to his performance as well. Uh, and, of course, he won at 37 seconds of the, they say of the third round. Because one that wasn't this. Oh, no, sorry, excuse me. He won the first round, got dropped in the second, and then they came out in the third. That's right. My mistake. Um, in any event, 37 seconds of the third round, Josh Johnson won. But Josh Johnson told me an interesting story that I'll tell you guys here on this podcast. Um, he trains with Andy Sauer. Andy Sauer trains with Jose Aldo, so therefore Josh Johnson has trained with Jose Aldo. And I asked him, um, you know, how good is Jose Aldo? And he said he could be a pro right away if he wanted to. Now, he wouldn't be, you know, at the top of the ranks just yet, but he could be a pro-level kickboxer. But that wasn't what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me was he said, Andy, um, he, was, he was just describing how good the athleticism was of... of 
Jose Aldo, and he said Andy Sauer is one of the best guys. Josh Johnson was saying Andy Sauer is one of the best guys at putting together hand combinations, moving forward in a straight line, like just finding all different ways to sort of change rhythm and speed and power to keep guys guessing. And he said that um, Sauer and Aldo were sparring, and Sauer must have thrown a five or six punch combination, all almost all to the head. And he said Aldo was able to slip and use trunk movement and get his head off center line, making uh, Sauer miss on every single punch. He said he was kind of surprised by that. He was like, you know what, listen, you understand where Jose Aldo might be if he wanted to come to kickboxing, but there was this one time where blah, 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 and then he explained that story, and I was, he was very impressed by it. By the way, he thinks that he thinks that uh, Aldo is going to shred McGregor. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, Xavier Vigny, uh, out of, uh, who, by the way, uh, walked to the ring in a, um, the Nick Diaz promotion war t-shirt. Uh, defeated Everett Sims. Everett Sims, by the way, trained by UFC veteran Tim Cador. Uh, Xavier was just using the, the, the jab to measure him. Um, not much more to it than that. This is Everett's glory debut. I'm not sure exactly what level of kickboxing he's really at. Xavier, you know, he's been a little slow previously, but his technique is really cleaned up, and he just overwhelmed the guy completely. He took maybe one body kick, but I don't think Sims landed a single punch. Uh, this one ended at 144 of the first round. And then finally, the uh, headlining bout on the Superfight Series, Andy Risty defeating Steve Moxon via TKO, referee stoppage at 243 of the first round. There really wasn't much to this one. Moxon knew he was outgunned here. He even admitted in the fighter meetings he knew he had to take risks. That's just not a place you want to be against Risty. By the way, he was much shorter than Risty, too. So the Risty step-through knees were just beating him up. Um, and Risty basically did whatever he wanted to. I'll let you guys watch that fight. There's not, there's not much to say about that one. So we move on to the main card. We had a welterweight contender tournament, and then it was headlined by a heavyweight title turn- uh, title fight. Excuse me, because Errol Zimmerman had previously won the heavyweight contender tournament. So Raymond Daniels beat beat Johnson Oliveira. Oliveira going in really wanted to use his leg kicks to chop down Daniels. You saw Daniels, I think, previously against Valtellini. Um, if you chop down, was it Valtellini? I got a. Who was it that chopped him down? Let me. Refresh my memory here. It was at the uh, New York show, I believe. It was... Yeah, it was Valtellini. Oh, maybe that was Tokyo. One of the two. Yeah, it was Tokyo. Excuse me. Valtellini chopped him down big time. And uh, and once you chop him down, you know his hand, there's not much of his hands to speak of. That's not what he comes back, you know, back with. So, Oliveira, the problem is he was trying to pressure Daniels, but really couldn't. And as Daniels was able to was able to create space and quickly launch his explosive strikes, uh, spinning back kicks to the body, um, you know, I mean, all different measure of these huge wind-up windmill kind of attacks, dropping Oliveira, I think, uh, three times over the course of two rounds, and therefore, uh, if if you're stopped three times, or excuse me, stopped, if you're dropped three times in the course of a tournament fight, it's over. Um, and that's exactly, exactly what happened. So he advanced. Oliver just couldn't get much going. He couldn't corner him long enough and take away space long enough to really hold, do a whole lot. Daniels was, had just enough space to go around. Nikki Holtzkin defeated Alexander Stetsarenko via unanimous decision. Unfortunately, I didn't really get to watch this bout because I was backstage. I saw a little bit of it. Um, but I'll just refer you to a Jack Slack breakdown on this one about some of the ways he was able to split uh, Stetsarenko's guard and then off-balance him with perfectly timed leg kicks. A, a, a very tight contest, by the way. And I think people were expecting Holtzkin to go in there and just blast out Stetsarenko. You, you might recall Stetsarenko, he's a very credential kickboxer. He was the guy who lost to Paul Daly not too long ago in like a minute. Uh, I think it was a right hook that Daly 
through and just clubbed him, and he couldn't really answer the bell in time, or the, the ten count or eight count, I should say. So um, I think some people thought, well, if if Daly can do that, Stetsarenko certainly Holtzkin can. Didn't quite work out that way, but again, I didn't really get the chance to see it. Then there was the Army Air, excuse me, it was the Navy Air Force bout between Cedric Smith and James Hurley. Not a whole lot to say about that. Uh, Joe Schilling taking on Robert Thomas, winning a three-round unanimous decision. This was a great fight for Joe. Um, you know, Thomas is one of these guys, and people may not realize this, he takes on a lot of challenges that maybe he shouldn't against guys he's not supposed to be fighting at this level already. And he takes them on because he feels like he can learn more fighting these guys than he can someone at a more commensurate level. And I don't think that's true, but here's the takeaway from that. He doesn't mind losing. Now, I... I don't think he's happy about it or that he thinks it's great for his career, but it doesn't emotionally impact him. It, it was very weird to talk to him about it. He didn't seem to think that there was anything to worry about losing to them. Again, not that he thinks it's best for his career, but some of these guys, they lose and they take it as this existential crisis. Uh, Robert Thomas did not. So how did Schilling beat him? You know, Robert Thomas is one of these Thai guys, or has a Thai style where he starts out slow. Schilling just brought the business early. And what he found, if you watch the fight, a lot of the straight punches, particularly the, the, the cross, the right cross of Joe Schilling, it was landing early. So he just kept throwing it and throwing it and throwing it and throwing it. Um, a, a few jabs, and obviously he mixed it up here or there, but really the straight hard punches. And they were landing so clean that you could see Thomas being affected by them. So what wound up happening was Schilling was kind of loading up on his punches in the second round. Thomas kind of adapted to it, was able to use some better movement, using a lot more um, uh, middle and le- uh, low kicks to slow Schilling down. And it worked, actually. I don't think that Thomas won the second round, but it was much less, I mean, significantly less impactful than it was in the first round. But in the third round, Joe sort of readapted to that, eventually landing a spinning back fist that dropped Robert Thomas, uh, sort of close to the end of the round. And then in about 20 seconds left, I think Joe realized he had it in the bag and just sort of moved around waiting for the bell to ring. Um, a great win for Joe. Guys, I got to tell you, man, the Spike TV rub is working on Joe. And I don't know about this whole business about him doing the Premier Boxing Champions thing with Al Heyman, but there's no doubt that Schilling's name is growing rapidly. Um, if he can keep winning, 2015 is going to be a great year for him. So then we move on to the finals of the contender tournament. Holtzkin getting past Tetsarenko. Daniels getting past Oliveira. And then Holtzkin taking on Daniels. So Daniels' tricks basically just stopped working against Holtzkin. Um, he, had a, he had a moment, I think, in the third round where he had a late flurry. But then Holtzkin came right back. So how did Holtzkin do it? I mean, his, he cut off the ring significantly better. When he finally got Daniels in the corner, he didn't back out and let him out. He bludgeoned him with these ridiculous hand-speed combinations. Um, and as Duke Griffiths previously pointed out, what Holtzkin will often do is he'll throw, let's say, a five-punch combination where he'll do touch, 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 and then throw a hard shot to the liver or whatever. Um, Holtzkin's trademark left hook wasn't exactly there, but his left hand to the liver was, I mean, bru- I think he dropped Daniels twice from that, once from just sort of battering with a, an array of headshots. Um, he just could not take the liver shot from Holtzkin. Again, Holtzkin's defense, you got to see it. The way he's able to bring his gloves in together, his forearms together, and then almost like turtle his posture to round his back, and then he leans over without making himself susceptible to uppercuts. You really have to see it. It's like the, it's like the most perfect turtle shell I've ever seen a kickboxer do. 
Of course, Holtzkin's timing is perfect. Um, power is there now in both hands after the uh, auto accident because he had to train his right so much. Um, his patience is there. So, I mean, really, he's come together. He already beat Joseph Valtellini previously and then had to, you know, obviously the issue with the title because he was out so long. Valtellini beating Mark DeMont to grab that welterweight title. But um, So he, he's going to get his title shot. Holtzkin versus Valtellini is coming. Now, when and where, I don't know, but you can hear the cops go by. It's real in the field out here, y'all. Um, but just, I mean, an utterly sensational performance by, by Nikki Holtzkin. Again, I wasn't overly impressed with the Stetsarenko fight, but, but in the Daniels fight, just sort of showing like what real high-level experienced kickboxing looks like. Uh, a great combination of hands and feet, uh, understanding when to strike, what kind of vulnerabilities that Daniels is going to have. It's not just that Daniels can't offensively box. His defense there is weak as well. Holtzkin knew that, was really able to overwhelm him, crowd him against the ropes, not let him escape at angles, and uh, and it was it was a it was a beatdown. Uh, Rico Verhoeven defeated. Oh, by the way, the stoppage came at 125 of the third round, and then finally Rico Verhoeven de- defeating Errol Zimmerman. Technically via TKO and knee injury at 2.17 of the second round. Um, you know, this was a weird fight because, I mean, very, uh, Zimmerman and his corner were basically saying ahead of the fight that they just didn't believe Rico could knock out anyone, much less Errol, and that if, if anyone was going to get knocked out, it was going to be Rico because Errol is the one that goes balls to the wall. And that might be true. But it wasn't true this time. And by the way, some people were remarking online that like Zimmerman gassed. He he did look gassed, but I can tell you that um, you know everybody who was from Holland that wasn't from Rico's camp was telling me Zimmerman trained his ass off for this. So I don't know what his deal is. I don't know if he I don't know if he panicked. He might have. Rico came out like a I mean a man possessed. Um, and just absolutely brawled with him, cornering him as well, taking away his big punch and his big jumping knee, which is a sort of trade, tra- that trademark overhand right that Zimmerman has. Um, he took away all of those, but he brawled with him. So they both got rocked several times, but it was Zimmerman who got hurt a little bit more and was also being cornered and getting backed up. So he eventually tries this, like, I don't know, turning sidekick or, or maybe like a wheel kick. And twist his knee. Uh, I'm told by Michael uh, Stetz over at MMA Mania that he tore his patella tendon, which is no, no good. But uh, anyway, so it was a bit of a weird fight. But the key takeaway was that Rico didn't come out and play a patient game that would allow Zimmerman to have these big shots. And I'm not saying that Rico might have overcorrected by getting so aggressive because you trade bombs like that in close quarters. I mean, they were just standing in front of each other, just bombing. Rico could have had some bad things happen to him, but. It didn't happen that way, and he retained his title. It's not clear who's next for him exactly, but I guess we'll figure that out down the road. My man of the card, you're going to laugh at me because I think most people would say Nikki Holtzkin, maybe Joe Schilling. I'm going to give it to Josh Jauncey. I just feel like the the what he showed me, you know, when you're watching all these amateurs, and then you watch the low-level pros, and then you watch the you know the the guys who are sort of on the bubble in glory, and then you watch a rising contender, 21 years old like Josh Johnson, come out and do what he did, it just makes a tremendous impact on you. So Josh Johnson is my man of the card or fighter of the card anyway. And uh, I don't know, you guys can rate this card how you want. I'd give it about two and a half, maybe three, if you wanted. But uh, anyway, that's what happened. So then there was RFA 23. Headlined by Terry Unaware versus Joe Murphy. Um, I'm not going to get into too many of these. There's not a whole lot to get into. Mike Jasper defeated Blake Troop via TKO at 212 of the third round. 
Uh, a very weird fight. Jasper hardly wouldn't throw any punches until Blake was like clinching with him. And when he did, he yeah, he was bombing on him, had some vicious elbows to the ear in the clinch after suffering a couple of takedowns. But there's just I, I I just you know I know Jasper has a good record and maybe he'll get better and he certainly RFA is a good place to get experience. But I, I you know this is not like Khalil Roundtree where you're like oh my god this guy yes he's lacking some skills but the skills he already has. A, can get better, and B, are already good enough to give guys a high-level problem. Um, you know, I'm not so sure I saw that from Mike Jasper. Uh, however, Adam and uh, Antolin versus Ron Henderson, you know, Ron, a very credentialed grappler. Adam Antolin looked incredible in this one. Basically, it was just the difference between two levels of fighters here. Ron uh, was submitted in the third round at 406 via rear naked choke, but Adam was doing basically whatever he wanted to and was able to back him up, was... Uh, had had fantastic uh, head movement, slipping punches, uh, landing while he slipped, which is an important note. He didn't just slip and get out of the way. He was slipping and throwing at the same time. This happened on multiple occasions. Was able to go to, go to the body. Uh, wrestling was good, not great. Uh, Ron Henderson was able to pop his hips back up off a clinch takedown that Antolin had punched his way into. Um, but on the ground, there was, I think, a moment, I think in the second round, I want to say, maybe the third Antolin loves to work from the crucifix position, has a lot of different attacks there, and he had lost the top position with it. So he rolled through to an omoplata sweep. It's not exactly a sweep, but he rolled through. He forced an omoplata roll so he could reclaim top position again. Really clever stuff. You see guys do that sometimes. They might be sitting in a spot, maybe it's loose, or they want to recapture it, or they want to tighten it, or they want to change the dynamic in some way, and they'll roll through like an omoplata. Um, and he was able to retain it, and um, yeah, it was just a, it was just a massive difference in level between Adam Antolin and Ron Henderson there. Uh, Jocelyn Jones Liebarger just crushed the face of Maria Rios, winning a unanimous decision. Not much to speak of there. Dominic Waters also defeated Mikey Gomez uh, via unanimous decision uh, at three minutes. Oh yeah, yeah, unanimous decision. Um, one note about Mikey Gomez. His walkout song was one of my all-time favorites by Calle 13, Vamos a Portarnos Mal, excuse me, uh, otherwise like Let's Behave Badly is what that means in Spanish, and uh, it's one of my all-time favorites, so shout-outs to Mikey Gomez for walking out to that song, but there just wasn't, like in these last two fights, I'm kind of breezing over him because it's just, you know, when I watch RFA, again, you're not looking to see a firmly finished product, but you're looking to see a spark. Right, you're looking to see something where, like, wow, if this keeps going, this is going to be great. And I'm not saying Dominic Waters or Mikey Gomez or Maria Rios or Jocelyn Jones Labarger aren't going to do that, but maybe these fights weren't necessarily the best showcases for that. You know, I never want to take away a fighter's opportunity to prove that they can belong, um, but not every one of their fights are, at this level are necessarily going to showcase that, unless they're truly, 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 you know, once in a while special. Uh, now here's a fight that is worth talking about. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's either Hyoni or or Ryoni or Ryanel or however you pronounce this guy's name. Uh, his last name is Barcelos. Okay, and he took on a dude um, named uh, Jamal Parks. Jamal Parks wrestled uh, at uh, Oklahoma State. Obviously, the place of Daniel Cormier, place of Johnny Hendricks, place of you know any number of guys that you want to point to. Uh, the Rochalt brothers, and you can go on and on and on and on. He Jamal Parks lost. He lost at uh, two thirty one of the first round. This was an interesting fight. Um, what camp is Barcelos out of? I believe he's Blackhouse. I want to say no, Hizo. He's out of Hizo's fight team. Um, 
Barcelos is a beast, man. He doesn't physically look the part in the same way that Jamal does. Like, you look at Jamal, I mean, not that Barcelos looks like some sort of schlub, but Jamal Parks clearly looks like an athlete, okay? And you can see him move in wrestling exchanges, and it was fantastic. There was a moment early in the fight where he was put on his back, I think he slipped, or um, he may have been tripped up, and he, I mean, his scrambling was brilliant, quickly getting his base under him and moving his feet laterally. It was actually really impressive. And when they locked up in the clinch, Barcelos could tell right away this was not a guy you were going to move with your wrestling. It just wasn't going to happen. His his physical strength there was, was evident. His balance was evident. Um, and just his gripping sequences. You could just tell. You know, you see these guys who have been wrestling at that kind of level, man. You can just tell they can do incredible stuff. So that really was kind of great. You know, he's got, he's, he's athletic, he's quick, um, he was engaging with offense, but that was his undoing. He just had absolutely no head movement. And what he would do is he would paw with his jabs, and they were lazy. And he wasn't retracting them very quickly, and Barcelos was lighting him up. Both, interestingly, as Parks was moving in, and also Barcelos was able to pressure him, get him to move to a certain side, and light him up there too. The fight ended as Parks tried to close the distance um, with these like rangy jabs that, you know maybe work in sparring, they, I don't know how else to say it, his head was wide up in the air, chin was up in the air, he was off balance with his footwork, when you watch him, he's, he's almost in the air, like jumping, like crow hopping, into, into range with Barcelos, Barcelos times it, lands a flush right hand, that was completely unobstructed, and then finishes him off with uh, hammer fists, as he falls back to his back, I still think Jamal Parks has a bright future, I think a guy this good, is going to learn pretty quickly, um, and obviously he has a lot of other athletic tools and skills that you can use, but this was a bit of a learning experience for him. Uh, in the co-main event, Gabriel Checo taking on Joseph Henley. You might remember Henley from uh, Leonidas, as they used to call him on the Ultimate Fighter. Looks significantly less muscular in this fight. He lost, shockingly, at 1 minute and 14 seconds of the first round. Gabriel Checo looks the part, and he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but when he throws a punch, he throws both of his hands at the same time. You have to see it, like not the same amount of distance, like he'll obviously favor, if he's throwing with his right, he'll favor the right over the left, but both hands move forward. It's it's the most awkward thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, but he somehow managed to land, I think it was a right, could have been a left, but either way, or maybe he landed, a he pawed with a right, and it didn't land very well, and then he landed the other hand on the temple. Of Joseph Henley, either the left or the right, I don't remember. But the point was it was a temple shot. But the temple shot was only made like six or eight inches away from his head. It was like you know one of those Bruce Lee one-inch punch type deals. And Henley just collapsed. Um, he wasn't out cold, but he covered up. And then Checo just followed up and beat him there. I guess Checo gets a middleweight title shot for RFA from there. But there was not, there was not a lot to look at in that fight and feel like um, you know, he could make it at the next level at all. Uh, the main event was great. Terry and Ware taking on Joe Murphy. It was only a three-round fight. Murphy came on strong, probably won the third. Terry and Ware won the first. Terry and Ware uh, has just sensational striking. And this was a loss for Murphy, but he's got a lot of potential too. So let's talk about like what went right and what went wrong for these guys, and then we'll probably wrap it up from here. I only have, let's see. Oh, there it is. You hear the timer? All right, so I'll wrap this up real quickly. So Terry and Ware and Joe Murphy, Ware has... Here's what's good about Ware. 
he has a huge range of tools, array of tools. He was using his footwork uh, without getting overly complicated to walk Murphy into a certain direction where he could land certain punches. He could switch sides. If he wanted to go from his kicks, he would open them up. If he wanted to, he would go back to orthodox to land better punches. Uh, again, another guy who could slip punches and land at the same time. Uh, something to keep in mind. I was really impressed by that. Um, had a great pace. Never really got cornered. Was just starting to chip at Joe Murphy round after, or I should say, uh, over the first two rounds, minute after minute, just landing a whole. I mean, uh, I don't know how else to say. Landing, t- you know, two punch head combinations, landing a three strike head and foot combination, um, stuffing takedown attempts, not letting Murphy land with his blitzing attacks or his darting at all. Really fantastic performance through two. But here was the problem with Ware after two rounds. After two rounds. He began to fade, I think, from a cardio standpoint, because he required he didn't require a lot of movement. But I don't know, maybe his he was tense or whatever. Um, but the problem was he didn't have the power to really hurt Murphy. He cut him a little bit, but he didn't really hurt Murphy. And as a consequence, Murphy was really kind of game all the way through the end of that third round. And he, uh, as he tired, his movement lessened. He was backing up where he is, whereas he was doing the pressure in the first two rounds. And because MMA is a game where, man, like, if you have great kickboxing skills, that really matters. It will carry you far. But we live in a world where these guys don't need to be the best kickboxers in the world. If they have a little bit of defense and a little bit of offense and four-ounce gloves, they're going to create problems for you. They're going to create problems for you. You have to be able to hurt somebody. Because if you can't hurt them and you're, you can land a lot, and they can hurt you even if they don't land a lot, you're, you might lose a round or a fight as a consequence. So... So Terry and Ware looked good through two rounds, essentially doing whatever he wanted for the most part. But in the third round, um, oh, there was a moment, by the way, where Joe Murphy got a takedown. Terry and Ware immediately grabbed wrist control, framed up for a triangle. Ware stood up and, excuse me, Murphy stood up, and then Ware used that to get his feet in the hips, stand up. Murphy tried to get behind him with a body lock. Ware spun into him and pushed off. It was awesome. Threatened with a submission. Murphy didn't want any of it. Ware getting back to his feet, but what do we always talk about on this podcast? It's not just defending a takedown when someone's on you. It's about what? Creating separation. Ware did that perfectly. Really strong performance from him in that point. But by the third round, Murphy was in his face. He didn't have to dart in anymore. In the first two rounds, he had to like sort of blitzkrieg him and like, and like run past or, you know, charge his feet to to get uh, offense going he was getting countered really badly that was not the case anymore he was able to just basically box up whereas his back was against the cage it, it was enough to take the round not not the fight so murphy has a lot to work on so does Ware. and uh, although i think murphy's problems are a little more correctable i'm not saying Ware doesn't have power but he just needs you know it's fine to la- land a nice hard outside leg kick you need to be hurting guys you need to be changing their decision-making based on what you're landing. Power in MMA, you never want to rely on it, but it's such an equalizing force that you don't want to dismiss it either. Uh, all right, and then quickly, uh, by the way, there was a Penn State-Iowa wrestling meet, a dual meet, I, I can't even get to because we don't have time. Quickly, we'll end on this. Gary Tonin faced off against Javier Vasquez. Vasquez, a WEC King of the Cage and UFC vet. Um, and, of course, we all know Gary Tonin. Tonin, however he pronounces it, uh, uh, there's a. It was a 14 minute match. It was it was uh, no gi sub only. There was a lot of moving parts in this one. Basically, um, there was a weight differential. Vasquez, I think, is closer to about 150 pounds. Tonin, about 175. So you know there wasn't exactly the same weight. So um, Gary spent 
a lot of the time attacking. And, you know, if he didn't want to give up top position, he didn't have to. But Gary Tonnen's incredible, man. He would get on top, and he'd be in half guard, and, and Javier's half guard. He would lock up a, a version of... Um, or he would, uh, sorry, he'd be on bottom like, or he'd be on top like that. He would, he would, he would purposely reverse himself and then lock up, use the lockdown to then do what's called part of this thing called the whip up, where they try to like basically move you forward. They get an underhook and they can do all kinds of things from there. They can reverse you back, but into a more superior position. Or there's submissions they can go right to from there. Um, it was crazy how he was going underneath and over on top and underneath and over on top. It wasn't a traditional like pressure passing kind of situation at all. Um, good defense from Javier uh, Vasquez. He was getting passed, and then it was in side control, and he was able to almost um, uh, land uh, an armbar one time. Yeah, I almost had a Kimura early. Uh, there was one time I uh, I, I was in uh, New York, and someone did this on me. I had a guy. I was in mount position, and they th- bucked me forward, brought their legs up, and used it to go right into a heel hook. Uh, Javier Vasquez did that, and it didn't work. But you know, he was he was attacking too, mostly defending. But he had a couple of moments where he was attacking. Um, but it ended when Tonin was sitting for an arm bar, couldn't finish it, so he was trying to finish the left arm, I believe. Of yeah, he was trying to arm bar the left arm of Vasquez. Vasquez withdraws the arm. Tonin hops to the other side. Uh, still, his legs are kind of entangled, but they're almost like a like if they were like arm in arm taking a picture kind of scenario. Um, and so Tonin is, is sitting there. They're both kind of sitting up, but their legs are intertwined and Gary has a, a hand in for a leg weave. And eventually he, uh, I don't know if he forces or Vasquez basically puts his shoulder to the mat. Tonin does like a chair sit. A chair sit is like the precursor for a back take. It's when your, your knee comes way up behind their head. Uh, you'll have like an over-under grip on them. And uh, and maybe one leg has a hook in. Maybe not necessarily, but that's a chair sit. You move out of a position into a chair sit. And he moves into a chair sit. And then when he moves into the chair sit, it isolates the, the, the arm underneath. Tonin uses wrist control on top to put um, uh, Javier's left arm down. And then uh, he steps over for the triangle. Locks it up, switches the grip. And, uh, and that was all she wrote at about 14 minutes or so in, maybe less than that, maybe closer to 11 or 12. But uh, I know that's complicated trying to explain jiu-jitsu over, over the radio and, or whatever you want to call this podcast. I'm not sure I'm the best guy to do it anyway, but that's a basic idea. It came from a failed arm bar, moves to the other side, chair sits to isolate the arm, and then steps his leg all the way over to the side of uh, Javier Mendez's neck, rolls over to his back, triangle, and switches his grip to make sure the triangle's in the right way. Locks it up, and that's all she wrote. Pretty, pretty incredible performance, actually, from Gary Tonin. Um, all right, so you can uh, get at me on email, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You can uh, follow me on Twitter, at sbnlukethomas. You can get on my Facebook, facebook.com slash sports, And we'll have coverage of, um, let's see, UFC Fight Night, what, 60 this weekend? I think that's what that is. Uh, I, my wife's out of town, so I'll be working the event, and it'll be good. Guys, until then, enjoy uh, your weekend and enjoy the fights. Peace.